okay thank you to, for listening to this um i kind of decided with coronavirus to have more time on my hands because my a-levels have been cancelled um but as a big fan of podcasts i'd probably try and make my own one so we'll see how this goes um i've got to think thankful because it's what my mom says and if she's pondering something deep and philosophical or just wondering what the cheese creature is so yeah this will be my i don't know if i use this again but this is my first episode of think thank thank um so yeah maybe there'll be something in the future but i'm not sure so today's episode of having a very fascinating discussion was christian baranowitz i think that's how you say his name um so yeah i studied a level rs and we've kind of been looking at secularization and how the church like adapts to secularization how it's had to like change its practices how it's changed its doctrine whether it should change its practice and doctrine. Um, so on that kind of basis in that context of that topic, um, I want to kind of look at the idea of where does church go from here? Where does church go from 2020? And like, where's, what's it going to look like in 20 or 50 or like 200 years time? So that's the kind of premise of this discussion. So with these questions in mind, I thought I would turn to who I call the master of knowledge, um, which is Christian. So we both attended the same church and we went to various like, apologetics events. So we, that's something that's run at my church called But What If? And you kind of explore these different like philosophical and Christian ideas. And Christian evidently just absolutely loves apologetics. So he'd be like, read this book, this is an amazing article I read. Da, 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 da. So he's been a Christian, as he says, for about seven years now. And in that time, he's just like read and written so much about it um, and as a graphic designer he's written so much about it that he's actually set up his own website which is so cool which is called 1c15 after 1 corinthians 15 um, so that's an amazing website if you can check that out he's actually written all these conversations about like philosophical her uh, historical evidence for god and that kind of thing and all those philosophical arguments and also kind of like evidence um for those claims and kind of a christian dialogue on how to aid that so it's an amazing thing that he's done so yeah he's just got a really big brain a big heart for christianity and all those kind of issues so i thought he'd be a perfect person to ask about like well where do you see the church going what are the aspects that are going to change and we had an absolutely fascinating discussion so without further ado here's our conversation yeah so thank you for joining me for this conversation so i guess what we're mainly talking about is looking in the context of secularization how the church is changing to that um so kind of where the church can go from here and how it's going to change in the next like 50 to 200 years kind of thing so we've been having a few like questions back and forward about various things to do with this and one of the most interesting things i thought was about um you're saying about apologetics you're obviously really insightful you've got your own website that you've set up about apologetics um so just wondering you were saying about the bridging between academic academics and Lay, the lay person of the church so can you tell me a bit more about that yeah so i think one of the great advantages we've had recently is there are many sort of christian institutions sort of um they're called like rzim and reasonable faith and stand to reason and uh, reasons to believe that these sort of um christian sort of societies that have sort of spawned up um basically to help educate christians on how to defend the faith. Mm. Um, and basically a lot of these people are academics or the people in the academic sort of circle. So the problem's been we have Christian academics, mm. we have the Christian layperson, and we have no one really in between to bridge the two. So you've got these Christian lay people giving really bad answers. And every <laughs> time a skeptic can say an answer, they just say, well, the Bible tells me so, so therefore that's my answer. Whereas yeah. we don't have to just use that answer. There are 
better, healthier answers. And there are plenty of Christians in these academic institutions. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they've been setting up lots of events like, um, like I know you've been to reboot and there are other, there are lots of Christian events, which are, they're not just about learning Bible truths. Like um, the churches do that. There's lots of them anyway. Now there's more about actually understanding why you believe what you believe, Mm. what are the rational reasons and why Christianity makes the most sense of those reasons and why Mm. you should believe in Christianity as opposed to X, Y, or Z. Mm. Um, So that that in a nutshell is um, two of the big things that have changed. Mm. Um, Another great thing we've sort of observed is... um, I think the church is sort of, it's returning to its first and second century roots. Um, so there are a lot of second century apologists like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. And before then we had Paul the Apostle who went in, you see in Acts chapter 17, he debated uh, philosophers in Greece. They were pretty smart chaps at the time. And um, so we have in the second century similar figures doing what we're starting to do more of now since Actually, the 1970s, Christian philosophy has sort of exploded and it's really starting to dominate. And um, I think the church is starting to connect the dots between Christian philosophy and theology. Mm. They always did in the past, but we kind of separated when the whole of Europe was Christian and now we sort of didn't appreciate it as much. And now things are starting to come back together. So interesting. Yeah, I think I think that's what's going on with the lay person and Christian apologetics. It's kind of philosophy and theology and sort of yeah. they're kind of meeting together to um help christians have a b- better understanding of what they believe why they believe yeah. it and how to defend it um because yeah. half the damage is people give answers um from their christian perspective and they're just they're not very helpful or they make people anesthetic and, yeah uneducated yeah yeah that's really interesting so I don't know, I, you're obviously a massive fan of apologetics and you gave me a book by William Lane Craig and it was really interesting, he talked about the argument from opposites, it's kind of like an idea of maths that they use, but they were saying that like, because of all the communism in Russia there's a massive like onset to Christianity after that had fallen because it's kind of like oh we've had that and this now we're going to turn to Christianity because it's a new thing. So do you reckon that perhaps secularisation has been quite helpful in that sense of Christianity because there's been this secularisation, there's more like emphasis on reason, do you reckon that's why apologetics has bloomed so much? Yeah, so I think one of the areas where it's, it's bloomed for two different reasons. I think when the UK was considered a Christian nation, everyone else, everyone would call themselves a Christian. Mm. Um, people responding to that, um, the Enlightenment movements, for example, yeah, yeah. or whatever you want to call them, um, sort of attacked this Christianity and the people defending it weren't giving exactly the healthiest of movements. So, sorry, I've completely forgotten your question. That's okay. It's about like, do you think it's been helpful that we've had secularization? People have been able to like question other forms and not just like saying, oh, I'm a Christian for the sake of it. They're kind of able to like, you know, have the reason and they've come back to it with those kind of secular principles of rationality. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, sec- secularization is sort of um, been a bit of a wake up call and it's been mm. a helpful challenge that Christians don't get lax in their faith. I mean, mm. um, I think a lot of Christians say, well, I'm Christian. I'm in a country, Christian country. Yeah. Um, therefore, you know, I'm okay. Yeah. When you're in a Christian country, your parents are Christian. People get into this idea of, well, this is my culture mm. rather than actually investing in the biblical texts and actually understanding what is Jesus actually asking of Christians. And a lot of Christians have sort of fluttered away. I mean, I grew up in theory, a Catholic. Well, I went to a Catholic school. <laughs> I mean, grew up, grew up a Catholic. 
I went to a Catholic school and I yeah. think when I got to uni, someone told me God didn't exist. And after about 30 seconds, there we go. I was an atheist. <laughs> I didn't really have anything to ground it. And I loved it when I was an atheist for about what, seven or eight years. I was an atheist. So mm. it didn't really do much for me. Um, yeah. At the same time, yeah, sec- secularism sort of, I'm trying to think of the word. It, 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 it helps to keep something in check. So it's kind of like with political parties, conservative and labor, one keeps the other in yeah. check by existing. Whoever's in power, they challenge each other. And for yeah. Christianity, it's kind of helpful to have challenges because when they give bad responses, it shows things are unhealthy. When yeah. they give healthy yeah. biblical responses, it shows they're in good health. Um, and I would say we've had a lot of bad health. Like in America, we've seen plenty, but I'm not American, so I, won't, I can't. I'm not <laughs> But in, in, in Britain, yeah, there have been um, some poor answers. There's been some strange church stuff. I mean, the fact that some churches have voted on biblical principles mm. doesn't really make any sense, really. Um, yeah. But yeah, we'll get into that a bit later. But yeah, it, it, it's been a helpful measuring rod in a way mm. um, and a good test to see how much do you really want to defend your faith? How much do you care about the Christianity you believe in? Or is it just part of your culture, which should never be the answer? Yeah. So talking about culture, you sort of mentioned earlier that um, we was, you see in the next like 20 or 50 or however many years, a kind of decline in the cultural Christian. So could you talk a little bit more about that? And also, I guess, on the idea of culture and church, like obviously church has changed so much. So like the church nowadays is not the same as the church, the early church or the church in the Roman era or like in the Tudor times. So obviously there is a kind of cultural element to Christianity so how do you reckon that's going to change? Are we going to have to adopt more liberal principles? Or, yeah, so just more about culture and the church. What do you think about that? Well, my big hope is we get back to the first and second century church, maybe without all the persecution and slaughter from Romans, but we have less of those. <laughs> Great. Um, so I think one of the things is um, cultural Christianity is dying out. And what I mean by that is when I would go to hospital as a child, you would tick a box saying, are you Christian, Catholic, Protestant? Uh, you tick your religion. It's kind of everyone did it. That kind of Christianity is dying out. The Christian saying, I'm a Christian because my mom and dad are a Christian. That's dying out. So when I hear Christianity is dying out and I look into it, those Christians are dying out, which is great because the, like my mom and dad would be considered Christians under this, even though my dad's closer to a pantheist or an atheist and my mom likes pagan stuff. Yeah. So yet under a government form, they were Christian, which doesn't really make any sense. So those Christians are sort of, let's say they, that type of Christianity will shoot down, but in its place, there'll be, there is um, a Christianity that is strong, faithful, knows what they believe and knows how to defend it. That's the Christianity that's growing. And we've seen it in my own church. Um, they planted a church and now we're at max capacity again. And there are, the coronavirus has probably been helpful in one respect because now they can think about what they're going to do about capacity issues. Um, yeah, very true. I don't know what it will be like when they get back. Um, but as far as I know, virtually we've gained a lot of members. So we'll see yes. what happens there. So, um, yeah, so the first point, and this sort of fake Christianity, cultural Christianity is dying out. Yeah. You're Christian because you're English. Um, silly anyway. But um, So when you, yeah, when you remove that, um, you sort of, you're left with a milieu of Christians who are, are committed to their faith. Um, what was the other part of your question? Yeah, so I did sort of shove two questions in one. So the other one was talking about like culture and Christianity. So obviously the church is adapted in different times. It's kind of like, is church shaped by culture or is like culture shaping church, that kind of thing. So 
is church going to get more liberal? I guess it's going to a different question, but how does it, obviously the reporting and like representation of church is changing and it's becoming a bit more liberal. So do you reckon it's going to have that more liberal identity to it in the future or will it kind of stick to its original principles? Well, no, I don't think, I don't think the uh, liberal side is going to do very well. Um, everything that I've read, I, I just prior to this, I had a little look on the internet to see how the liberal church is doing. I read five articles about the liberal church collapsing in oh, wow. five popular, um, high population countries yeah. in um, France, Canada, USA, the UK, different parts of Europe. The liberal church isn't appealing. In fact, the evangelical church is thriving in Europe right now, um, mainly because the cultural Christians are all sort of disappearing. And there's only one very few forms left. You've got these committed Catholics mm. who care about what they believe. Yeah, you've still got cultural ones. Um, but the evangelicals which are there are only of one stock. Sure. There's no room to be an evangelical mm. and to not really care. <laughs> it's sort of not worth the investment now. Um, so, no, in terms of um, the liberal church, I don't think that's doing very well at all. Everything I read about it is not doing well. In America, uh, well, the liberal church isn't doing well at all. There's many stories about them trying to, every time they add something, so say if you concede one belief, um, you lose a little bit of the church that wants to stay in the faithful church, and then they concede a little bit more, and then they lose more members. Mm. And they may gain a few liberals, sure, because they're trying to appease them. Mm. But the more you mutate it, the more you realise you have no grounds and you're kind of like a political party. Yeah, you're sort a social club or a community group, yeah. yeah. You're, you're changing to please your audience, but what if you, keep, if you keep alienating a good chunk of your audience? Sometimes some of your audience will leave just because you keep changing your opinion and you're just like, well, I thought a church is going to be a bit more solid than this. Mm. So some people may not be against the change, but because you're constantly changing, you're losing people a lot faster than they're gaining. And that's what we've seen in the liberal churches in, across parts of Europe, in America. Um, which doesn't surprise me really the liberal churches haven't survived in the last 2000 years the only churches we still see generally doing and thriving are the ones sticking faithful there are the cultural ones like yeah. um, cultural catholics cultural protestants yeah but again those ones are dying out because the risk of being a christian kind of it's not the most it's not the coolest thing these days so some will just throw it off because just doesn't benefit them to call themselves a Catholic. At school, it kind of benefits. The liberal church is failing, perhaps, because you would have thought if they're kind of adopting more secular principles, being more obviously liberal. I mm. guess, yeah, because the Christi Christianity isn't cool. Perhaps the liberal church just can't bridge that. You kind of just have to accept it and, like, you know, mm. go to the more fundamental Christians. Yeah. And um, you also said something, something really interesting about the kind of rise of spirituality. So with Generation Z, something about also thinking about the liberal church collapsing. But there's mm. an interesting parallel between liberal people don't want to join the church, but also you're saying that perhaps you gave like an estimate of a poll that was saying that by 2050 or whatever it was, there'll be no more atheists or something and there'll be just Christians and Buddhists. So could you elaborate on that one a little bit? Yeah, so there were some statistics basically saying uh, by 2050, there's going to be a lot more religious people, very few atheists. And David Brooks wrote an article in the New York Times um, about a decade ago, and he's sort of written further on it since then. Um, basically saying we're going to end up with this sort of Buddhism versus hard religions or the hard belief system. So Christianity is a uh, belief system built on principles, it's built on an objective truth. And Islam, which follows on from, uh, it's, it's, it came 700 years after Christianity and thousands of years after Judaism, and it follows on from boring bits here and there. Um, and these would be considered the more solid religions with with a system in place and things like that. You see, a lot of it, 
a lot of the Gen Z sort of have not taken the same line as the generation before them, the 9-11 generation, where new atheism came in with Dawkins, Dennett, Krauss, Hitchens, all these big atheists telling you, there is no God, your life is meaningless, there's no purpose to it, just get on with it and get to the grave, but do something decent in the meantime. Yeah. But the Gen Z have sort of said, oh, actually, that's, that's a rather blunt definition, and I've not seen much proof for your statements. I've just a lot of anger and hatred for what's happened. So there's a generation which are, they want to know facts, they hate fake news, and they investigate things. Mm. And they are seeing a lot of truth in it, and they are thinking, well, what is to shut out the spiritual realm? Why... Why shut it down just because you say so? I mean, you haven't proved it doesn't exist. You're just saying it doesn't because they presuppose materialism. So a lot more people... Do you reckon that could actually lead to more cultural questions, though? Because if you're saying that people are looking for spirituality and, like, the meaning, do you think perhaps people could just jump on the bandwagon of spirituality and, like, oh, I found a God and I'm grounded in this? Do you reckon that would lead to more cultural questions, in fact? Well, you might have done. The reason why it's not, this kind of... I suppose you could thank the media a little bit, is... Media and a lot of views haven't seen, if you say, oh, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I read the Bible. That's generally not the most positive thing to be associated with. So if, you're a, if, you, if you want to be spiritual, you want God, and you kind of want to shape it your own way and do what you want, mm. Christianity is a burden to you, even mm. if you're a cultural one. Because then if you say I'm a Christian, then here come a bunch of skeptics, basically slamming and uh, verbalizing and bombing you. Mm. And, uh, with a lot of insults and you're just like, you know, what? I don't want that baggage. I just want to say I'm spiritual. There's a God up there. Mm. It's a safer position. And a lot of people too default there. And it also kind of, it feels like you've got no pressure on you to answer. Even if you don't really know what you believe, mm. it leaves you in sort of a gap to say, well, this is like my protective bubble from debates. Um, which um, would infuriate me because I love to ask questions and I love to actually <laughs> know what I believe. But it, it, it's, if you want to set yourself up in a bubble of, well, you know, it's basically saying, I'm agnostic, I'm exploring, I don't know the answers. Um, yeah. But it's calling yourself spiritual when it means um, you can engage in what you would see as spiritual practices, which the skeptical, the atheist wouldn't do because they think, well, you're wasting your time with these sort of things. Um, they may have some positive value for mental health, mm. but that's what they are. They're tools, nothing more. Whereas some, some would like to say, actually, there might be something more but you don't know that. Mm. So, um, so you end up with this sort of, cause you could be an atheist and be a Buddhist. Buddhism <laughs> gives you permission to be spiritual, to have a relaxed rule set. So basically it's almost like a, a self-help plan. You can do what you like with it, which is why it's kind of against the hard beliefs of Christianity and Islam and Judaism. It doesn't hold enough weight to replace it. It's just like, if you, if you fancy a rule set or a, or a, a plan for spirituality, that's it so and you'll have a lot of big names which will sort of endorse spirituality and people love to follow big names and models there was Deepak Chopra back in the early 2000s they'll jump on a spiritual leader and they say oh wow look at this and if you're a scientist or a celebrity and there's a spiritual side to you those are the ones they'll jump onto um, it doesn't happen as much with Christian celebrities mainly because they're Christian and that's just not that could be a <laughs> Hmm. what do you think about that prediction then do you reckon that will be the case so when we get to 2050 do you reckon they'll be like the atheists will be the minority and christianity would have risen loads in the young, younger generation well atheism's never really grown very big um i mean they're loud it's the same with many activists allowed and 
I mean, I love the Extinction Rebellion, mm. but they are a small amount, but they have got a big voice. Um, that's one example. There aren't many vegans, but they have a big voice. There aren't many atheists, but they have a big voice. But in the case of atheism, um, lots of people have responded to them and what they offer in return isn't as tempting. Say, if you're Extinction Rebellion, you want to care for the environment. That's, that, that's a lot more tempting. Mm. If you're an atheist, you take away all hope. Not many people like that conclusion. Well, I mean, there are kind of polls, I think it was in the 2011 census, they were saying that like 53% of people are identified as atheists. There obviously is something in there that people are like going towards, but do you reckon that will shift by like 2050 when more spiritual and more close to that kind of meaning? Yeah, so whenever I look into these surveys, I actually look at the questions and they're not very interesting or detailed. Um, so for example, when you see the surveys of do you pray, well over 80% of the country pray, well they can't be atheists then can they? Interesting. Um, there was a coronavirus poll to see how many people prayed and it, it, it was above 90%. There's some people who say, well, I'm an atheist, but I pray, so I don't think I'm an atheist because I'm, I'm spiritual. And I think that's where people are going. A lot of them are, rather than becoming cultural Christians, they'll take a lot of what Christianity has, bring it into this Buddhism, this spiritual world, and it won't be associated with Christianity. So it's kind of like pillaging, really. Secular humanism does it as well. Secular humanism has de-baptism services. They have churches with... De-baptism? I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it means nothing. But, um, I mean, I don't get, as an atheist, why you need a de-baptism. Well, they just like ceremony, which is a bizarre concept anyway. Um, I wouldn't appreciate it as an atheist when I was an atheist. But I, people like ritual, regardless of whether they're atheist, Christian, agnostic, Buddhist. Wow. Um, yeah. No, no, no. So I think it will go into um, people will just be more spiritual. I think the hardline atheists, unless something massive shifts, you know, because mm. Islam is going to grow humongously because they just have huge breeding families. That's that's a blunt fact. Yeah. Um, and they will. And there's a huge amount of Islam in the Middle East, Islamic uh, Muslim cultures. Um, so there will always be thriving populations. And in those countries, it, it's not really going to change or shift that much. There may be a shift, but if there's a shift, it'll be radical. There are shifts in Iran, um, but sometimes when you want to shift in a country like that, sometimes there's resistance. So, but the Middle East is tricky anyway. Um, yeah. so on the so, back of that other thing, so with this rise in spirituality, where do you reckon the church is going to change most in the world? So obviously the Middle East, you're saying, will be pretty much fixed in Islam, but where do you reckon there'll be like huge growth in Christianity? Ha, I was going to say the Middle East, actually. Um, <laughs> this understood you. Yeah, well, it's one of the most fixed ones, but I mentioned Iran, and the reason why I mentioned Iran is Iran has, uh, it's probably the most secular part of the Middle East. Um, but the country is run by the mullahs and the sheikhs of Islam. Um, so it's, it's an Islamic country. Um, but it's also what the highest, it's the second, second country in the world with the highest level of Christian conversions. Um, so this huge swathes of Iranian people who've been becoming Christian, that's happened for at least five or six years now continuously. Why is that? Um, why is that? Hmm. Well, I think, firstly, missionaries who went there, and then a lot of Christ uh, people who were Muslims claimed to have seen Jesus in a dream. I mean, this is very common. Um, you hear thousands of these stories a year. I, it's not something we're used to hearing in the West, but it's very common. I mean, there are even billboards... Um, in the Middle East, there are billboards. I know there's a billboard in Iran where it says, "If you've seen a man in a white robes and things like that in a dream, call this number." 
it's that common they have a hotline for people who claim to have seen jesus no idea about that (laughs) no i i I didn't have any idea about it but it's so common and it's such an abstract thing to say you've seen a white man in white robes in a dream call this number um they yeah they're they're all call services for this it's um hilarious um it's a really common thing so there china is by far the country that's growing the most in christianity um there's a whole host of news where president xi who's now a president for life according to the new chinese laws that he's made um he has been i think he's he was systematically tearing down several churches every day at one point don't know how he's doing now. Oh, Christian images are kind of like churches before and after that's been totally like wiped off and get only yeah. seen like satellite images, really. Yeah. Yeah. So China, um, Christianity is growing hugely in China. Um, and well, the church is doing pretty well. I mean, the underground church is incredible, but um, the churches in North Korea, for example, we know about them. They're very quiet, but they obviously don't meet in buildings. They're yeah. a different form of church in the cave church in China. But so the um christianity is more asian african and middle eastern than it is european i mean yes. the west the, the the white western side of christianity is the minority and it has been now for about uh, for decades so when people say christianity is a white man's religion they actually don't understand christianity <laughs> at all because there are more asian christians by a mile compared to christians in the west uh we're, we're a tiny population relatively so Our set in the middle east so yeah 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 um i mean isis have obviously done a lot of destruction one of the churches which the apostle paul planted in edessa i think it's edessa that church had been there for two thousand years and isis tore it down which was really sad to see really wow. that church had survived for that long yeah in the same place and remnants of the of the previous buildings there yeah it's only in the last couple of years that it got torn down which is a real shame so but yeah um i think christianity will grow the most in the Middle East, uh, China, it all depends on the resistance, things like that, but it's, it's always been growing hugely in China. It's just the numbers getting so big that the president's really trying to stop it. Which is- I reckon it'll be in those places where there is that kind of like argument from opposite. So I think I was reading Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. He was saying like, like people- That's a good comic. <laughs> I've only read a couple of chapters, don't worry. Um, yeah, so he was saying that like, people are wearied of the church in Europe and in the US, we're just, people are wearied of it. So do you reckon the biggest growth will be in those areas where we're not like tired of church doctrine perhaps? So like, what's the argument from opposite? Because you haven't had a church, you now want to go to the church. That's a great scientific argument from Richard Dawkins that people are feeling weary. Well, I felt weary of Richard Dawkins a long time ago. Um, it's not a very good argument to say we're wearied of something. Um, I, I'm quite wearied of a lot of church practice as well. I think many are though. When you've got Christians on street corners with cardboard signs, I'm very wearied of that. When I see churches breaking down the biblical values to try and please the culture, it looks desperate. And you're just like, why would I want to join an organization that desperate, trying to bring people in? I look at the prosperity church, it's all about money, or they're doing everything they can to bring people in uh, to boost the numbers. That's not the church. So I would grow weary of that. But the churches that really put away, they just say, look, if you're going to be part of this, you, you're, going to, you're going to take it for long. It, this, is, this is a commitment. Um, when Jesus called people, he just said, he, he said, follow me. And they had a commitment. They were committed to what they believed and understood, and they went with it. Um, so 
in that case, I agree with Dawkins. It's a terrible argument to say people are weary of the church. That's why you should be part of it. No, it's rubbish. Um, but yeah, you can be weary of things in it. But if, if the whole, I mean, communist Russia was all atheist. Many people grew weary of that. Um, and they've had great Christian revolutions since then. Um, admittedly, Putin's form isn't exactly the greatest. Um, but there are many evangelical churches in Russia. In fact, I am friends with a pastor in Russia um, yeah. through social media um, who is going against um, Putin's policies, but his church is thriving. Just, um, I don't think he cares as much about it. I think he's got bigger things he wants to shut down than the evangelical church. But when they do it, generally, the Eastern Orthodox Church, not the true form, it's sort of a Putin version. Yeah. Um, but politicized, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, very much the politicians are involved in Russian church as opposed to the actual church. Um, it's the same with like, I, I'm, I'm in a church in Chile. Um, compare that to the Church of England. It, it feels very different. It's a very different institution. And you can't get some, some politician or some high church leader saying, we're going to change this value. And we'll be like, why on earth would you do that? Yeah, they actually think, oh, we should have a big vote on it. No, we don't vote. The church and the state. So, do you reckon in the next fifty years? Because you have got the C of E there in the Lord's spiritual, something like the twenty-six bishops in the House of Lords. No, yes, House of Lords. So, do you reckon that totally needs to shift and that needs to change in the church, or is, or can the C of E sort of stay as that kind of semi-political organisation and the rest of the church just sort of do their own thing? Yeah. So I can. So obviously, the political system and much of the country of England is based on Christian values, which would make sense for legacy christian teams to be part of house of lords or lord spiritual um definitely a new word to me recently um i think other faith leaders should be involved i think they should all be representative leaders um so for example you wouldn't get a liberal christian in there because they are less than 10 percent of the, the uk 90 percent are according to an evangelical survey the 90 percent are the representative and you should do the same with islam the same with hinduism and buddhism have the faith leaders there so then they don't rule a law out and then just alienate um most of the religious people because that's not very fair and to treat them like um second level citizens um is also not great i mean we we've seen what countries do when they make religious people second level citizens um that was a war last time that happened um so I think they should. I don't think it should just be Church of England people. I don't. I don't like that idea. Even if I, if I, even if I'm not the Church of England's biggest best friend, mm. I do think it. It's good to have a democracy on it. Um, so then no one's thrown under the bus. Like it. Cool. So going back to what you were saying, you were saying about like the church is becoming or well, looking quite desperate in some areas. They're kind of like changing their doctrines to meet the culture. Um, I guess that goes on to the thing you know, we were talking about cultural compromises. So specifically thinking about perhaps the role of women in the church and obviously LGBT people, how do you reckon that will change? Do you reckon the church will make changes, kind of cultural compromises on those values or will it kind of be quite fixed? Because I mean, personally, I think that one of the biggest splits that will happen in the next 50 years or so with the Church of England will be the kind of issue about allowing gay marriage. So what do you think about that? So I'm going to break it into two sections. Um, adjusting and conceding. Um, Christian values. So what do I mean by adjust? So I'm going to take the women in the church thing. Um, so there are things like which the church discuss and debate about. So it could be women in the church. It could be, do you sprinkle baptism? Do you full immerse? These are things which they're known, they're talked about. They've always been discussed from the beginning. 
but they just adjust them. So, for example, women in the church. I lean in favour of women in the church. I say I lean in favour because I can understand the debate. Um, There are debates of does God determine everything, including our individual actions with a level of free will, or do we have more free will than certain levels? So how responsible are we? Are there other entities involved? How much is God involved? So the church has had this free will debate since day one because Jesus basically didn't give us a a full plan. Basically said, you don't need to know, but you can debate it and discuss it. So those are areas of adjustment. So for example, there are strong passages in Timothy, which sort of, talks about the positioning of deacons um about a wife to a pastor and things like that uh, but then i see in second century documents um plenty the elder who's was killing christians actually said they rounded up um, deacons and deaconesses who wouldn't bend who were faithful in the lord so these are faithful christians but there are deaconesses there and we're talking about deaconesses in the early second century this is uh just a couple decades after the apostle john wrote the uh um, book of john um so there is debate there because the yeah. women in the church issue seems to be my interpretation, just cultural spots, but I'm also not going to fight about it because there's so many areas you could discuss about. Um, that's not really my area. So I just sort of sit on the fence and just say, someone else can take up that mantle, present yeah. it to me. And I'm like, okay, cool. But for now, I, I mean, I'm not too fussed. Our church has a lot of women involved in a lot of different roles. They're in lots of group roles. They lead junior Bible studies and things like that. Um, they're very much involved in things. The only thing they don't do is you have the pastor in the pulpit, but sometimes they even give talks on the front. So mm. I, I don't, I mean, other than the actual preaching role, women do quite a lot in our church, really. Um, they're involved in pretty much every single group. Mm. Um, so they're certainly not shut out. Um, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure some churches mm. are a lot more shut out. Um, I don't think we're doing too badly. And I don't, I think a lot of churches involve women in lots of areas, really. So if it's, I think the key would literally be over that one key. Should they be in the pastoral preaching role? But even then many pastors wives are involved in ministry, like the husband uh, ministering to a lot of these women. Cause the pastor sometimes doesn't want to be surrounded by a woman here, women there. Cause I'm not saying they have mixed motives, but it, it's just easier. Like some blokes like to talk about man issues with men. Um, you may not want to meet the, the, the pastor's wife about something rather dodgy for a bloke and vice versa. So yeah. there's a practicality about it. So, yeah. so, so there's different sort of ways in it. Um, I just wanted to, the second, can I pick up on that really quickly? Sorry. Um, well, sure, you, you mentioned with Timothy and circumcision. So I can't remember the exact passage you were talking about, but yeah, obviously, Timothy didn't need to be circumcised by the new law that Jesus has set out. But Paul recommended hmm. it just so he'd fit in with the Jews that he was preaching to and be more culturally accepted. So you were saying that's the whole thing about adjustment, isn't it? It's kind of like fitting in just to allow the message through. Hmm. So do you reckon, because there are a lot of Christians or a lot of people who, so for example, we looked at Daphne Hampson in my A-level, and she calls herself a post-Christian because she believes that like um, Christianity is irredeemably sexist and she can't like grapple feminism and the Bible at the same time. So do you reckon that perhaps... That, that's an adjustment that Christianity has to make, that it has to kind of allow women into those leadership roles that feminists and people like that can get on board with it again. Is that an adjustment that's necessary in this society? I think people who say Christianity is sexist really actually haven't read the Bible very properly. I mean, I say that. Christianity mm-hmm. came out of a patriarchal society where women couldn't even be taught, had value. The second citizens, Romans, Greeks, many Jewish leaders, um, many of the Jewish leaders who held those views. Um, 
Pharisees weren't actually preaching from the Old Testament. They were just, some were, but some were imposing their own views. So you've got to remember, Jesus was, he had, so when Martha was doing the dishes and things like that, and Mary was sitting there listening and learning and becoming a student and becoming a teacher herself, Jesus did not th- tell her to go away. He said, Martha, you're the one doing wrong. I'm training you so you can go out there, preach the gospel and share. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot of biblical, biblical emphasis on women leading, but yeah. Cool. Sorry. Yeah. So the New Testament also um, got to remember this was the grounds for when Christianity um, was legalized. Basically, you wouldn't get killed for it in the early fourth century. Then the practice of women having value certainly changed. They were no longer secondary citizens. Um, Children were recognized as human beings and valued. They weren't just discarded like many Romans could. The practice of sati, where when husbands died in India. Their wives had to be bound with them and burnt with them. The practice of crippling women's legs in China was abolished thanks to the New Testament values of how highly valued women are. Um, there's a great book called Confronting Christianity written by Rebecca McLaughlin, actually, and she's a woman. And she covers a, covers a huge detailed chapter is, is Christianity sexist? And she'll give you a whole army of reasons why it's not. Um, so, Really, a lot of the debate and the fight about women in the New Testament goes down to one position in the church. It's, they make it sound like there's a fight over 4,000 different bullet points that are oppressing women. There's actually one particular specific role. It's the pastoral role. Women are involved. Uh, there's the elder, sorry, the elder, elder's position, the deacon, church leadership. So these sort of little core positions. But they're involved in everything else. The whole, even, most people know the passage where it tells women to be silent in the pews. Everyone knows that's culturally specific because they're taught to be silent in the pews, but they're also taught to prophesy. So what is it? You need yeah. to take the passage and it's understanding. That's almost, it's almost immediately after it. So mm. it's very little. So it, it's, it's not sexist at all. Some men have used it against women. Oh, yeah. and that is a problem. They should be called out for it. But then Christianity has been used for a lot of reasons, but... That's why we're having a generation of Christians who are biblically faithful. They understand what they believe before the words come out of the mouth. So when someone says the Bible preaches flat earth, if they understand the larger context and when something is a metaphor, they wouldn't make stupid statements like that. If I'm being honest, Um, they would understand the larger context. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I don't think, I think Christianity is great for feminism. It has been great for the abolition of slavery. It's been great for so many of these things. So people who just want to throw Christianity under the bus will say it's sexist, but like you could say something about another holy book, but unless you read it and actually study it, That's very you true. could say whatever you like. Um, so no, there are debates online, is Christianity sexist? And you can look at the debates on podcasts like Unbelievable. Um, and the answers and the arguments which people give, they don't hold any water because they're not true. Yeah. And even yeah. there are many churches in the country that do have female pastors. So there's no debate then if they're in pastoral roles. It's gone. But do you reckon in 50 years there will be more churches that are allowing women in the, into those pastoral roles? Um, that's sort of hard to guess, really. I would say yes. I don't say that as a liberalisation. I would say if there are deacons and deaconesses in the second century, then you're returning to original values. Uh, a scholar like Larry Hurtado, who's gone into that. There are other scholars like Craig Keener, Ben Witherington, Ronald Harris, Kevin Madigan, and there's a book called um, Two Views on Women in Ministry, um, which is a, a book about the debate and the discussion. It's a very good book um, from what I've heard. I've not read it. I just read the Amazon reviews and think one day I'll read that. Um, 
but you read enough reviews and you can get an idea, especially when someone gives a summary. So yeah, there, there could be more women in ministry, but I wouldn't say that's the same. That's an adjustment. Um, a concession would be, let's say part two of this question, mm-hmm. which I can get into now if you want. Yeah, go for it. Tell me about that. Okay. <laughs> which always feels more controversial because, um, is Christianity going to compromise on LGBT issues? Well, that's kind of part of the problem. If Christianity is claiming to be objectively true, um, I, don't, I can't remember if I've used this metaphor already, but if you're a vegan yeah. and you say, we're going to concede and we want to have a bigger population, so we're going to start letting pesca- uh, fish eaters be vegans. Yeah. Well, are you still a vegan? No. Or you, you say, oh, fake cheese tastes awful. Therefore, we want some real cheese. Um, I say this because I was a vegan for, when I was a vegan before it was called like a decade ago. The cheese was rubbish. Um, it, it's just a fact. That's an objective fact. Vegan cheese was rubbish ten years ago. Um, Why has it existed? And if you, yeah, and if you concede um, real cheese into a vegan group, you're no longer a vegan. You're a vegetarian. You can say whatever you want. You can justify whatever reasons, but you're still a vegetarian. You're not a vegan anymore. And the same would be said for certain Christian truths, Christian values. Christianity has certain moral values that seem plain and pretty clear. But I want to I say a few things. Um, Christians need to be more informed of their own doctrinal beliefs. They need to understand them. Because when Christians sometimes don't know something, they react. Mm-hmm. And I have LGBT friends, and if I didn't understand something and I reacted, I could not only damage that friendship, but they could hate me. And that would be really horrible. I, I work with quite a few LGBT people and i don't think they feel uncomfortable the fact that i'm a christian they probably know the views but i would say look you know the definition of tolerance is to agree is not to agree but to be tolerant of someone um i know the word tolerance people keep trying to change the definition but it's like i they may disagree with me but they'll die for my right to have my free opinion i mean who doesn't want to live in a free country i'd rather have that so christians need to be more informed they need to stop bashing the lgbt friends because i've got many and it hurts i mean as a christian when someone says jesus christ and uses it as a swear word there's a little part of me that gets hurt mm. it's just like oh, man you're using the person who saved me as a christian as a swear word if i yelled out ah, buddha i mean i don't want to offend buddhists and i don't want to yell out muhammad as a swear word either because well okay my muslim friends might be they have stricter laws and blasphemy than christians mm. um but it doesn't feel great. Or what if your name became associated with a swear word and you heard 7 billion people using your name as a swear word and you knew it was to say something negative, you'd probably feel pretty depressed after that. So, um, so it, it's that kind of respect of, I think we're better off respecting each other's views first. That's the first thing. Christians need to get better to respect that and also get to know their LGBT friends. Cause look, we do have different views. Um, homosexuality, does contradict a biological plan for marriage in the Christian worldview. We have a male, we have a female, they produce children. That is the biological side of marriage. The other side is a church representative. Jesus is the bride. We are the gro- groom, or did I get that the wrong way around? No, I think we're the groom, he's the bride. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. My <laughs> pastor will tell me off about but either way, yeah. Again, that, that's, that's the symbol of it. Um, and God is father as well. Um, I sort of have this image that the father takes the bride down the aisle and the groom. It's not literally like that, but I'm just talking in metaphors. Um, So that is one of the positions of the church. Um, So 
Now, there's no way for me to read the Bible, the New Testament, or any individual book there to compromise Christian beliefs. And the same goes for views on, it's not just this, this is, take remarriage. Many Christians don't know what the rules are, or, well, the Christian views are on remarriage. Yeah. Um, I mean, sex before marriage, people are like, oh, why, why, would you, why would you not have sex before marriage? Well, I'm one of those, and before I was a Christian, uh, yeah, my view of women wasn't very high. Um, they were more just there. Um, not great, but I became a Christian, and my views of women has radically changed since becoming a Christian, interestingly. Um, Christianity has such a high view of women and you know I can appreciate why it says that and I can understand it now by living out that truth I understand why it's true it makes sense and there are other areas and things like that um, so if you allow divorce to continuously happen in Christianity that's also not healthy um, because I've heard of people who've had multiple divorces and it's not healthy my own parents have gone through a divorce it was horrible mm. uh, neither of them have recovered from it fully I mean I don't think you ever really do um, so we can understand this. This isn't to say stay in an abusive relationship. If people are following Christian values, there would be no abusive relationships because right. they would understand what they agreed to before getting in. But some people jump into marriage too fast and they kind of don't ask all the hard questions. And hey, I'm hoping me and Robin have. Um, I mean, we've been married like five years and things are as chilled as day one. We just stay with it. And a bit Christian. So, um, so yeah, if Christianity is objectively true, like veganism is objectively has a set of principles yeah. <laughs> then it's got to stay the same um it's not going to change and what christianity needs to change is it doesn't need to concede lgbt values it needs to learn to love them as our neighbor mm. because they are our neighbors and look that we're going to have different views and look i'm sure we could change all of our values and they're just like well What's the point in you guys anymore? You might as well just split up your church if you're just going to compromise anything. I wouldn't be surprised if they said that to me. Um, so we don't concede that. They're not going to concede ground, and I don't expect them to. I know um, David Bennett, who was an LGBT activist. Um, he became a Christian, and he forgoed um, um, same-sex relationships. He chose to be single, and he's happier now than he's ever been. He's got, and he experienced that life with Jesus that you say, oh, you can't experience that. You're talking about a spiritual thing where something actually happens and you can feel it and your life has changed. You say, that doesn't happen. Well, he said, yes, it does. And he is sick and tired of people trying to oppress him into same-sex relationships where he says, if I'm happier than I've ever been now, why are you trying to put me back into an expression where I was still joyful, but less joyful? It's like taking me back. It's like saying, um, this is going to sound crude. I would, I would rather, it's just, just like saying, look, I have... You can be a married person. You, you have the option of your wife or just looking at dirty things on the internet. Well, what are you going to choose in the long haul? I mean, one's better than the other, but you can trick yourself. And the same with Bennett. He's just like, I could go back, but I know this is so much greater. Um, but he's lived out that truth. And Jackie Hill Perry is another person who, you know, has gone from that camp into the Christian camp, but they both have deep respect for the LGBT community. They know how they feel. They're not trying to force them to change, but they're also not holding on to what they want to change because basically they've seen that Christ is more than what I have now. And the only way to know that is to actually seek out that. And yeah, we're talking about experiential stuff, but we're saying that experience stuff is real. I know people say it's not, but it is. And I can say it is. I mean, I could be quite comfortable being an atheist, but I don't desire it whatsoever because there is a proper change. Wow. 
So that's really interesting, the thing about like compromise was it adjustment. So you're saying that compromise can happen in terms of women, like, because there's a biblical foundation for that. And you've got like, I don't know, there's so much evidence. I watched a really interesting documentary and they were talking about all the kind of exegesis of biblical passages. And it just, yeah, it's unresounding mm-hmm. that women obviously can be in leadership positions and take a greater role in the church. But do you reckon that perhaps, because I've also watched a documentary and people like Desmond Tutu were in it and they were saying that there was actually a lot of biblical evidence there as well in terms of supporting LGBT people. So do you reckon if you could somehow, I don't know if you like, oh, sorry, my bad. <laughs> it's not good, that's my battery, sorry. Um, so do you reckon if you sort of found some new text or some new analysis of evidence that perhaps LGBT people are, are like given a more prominent role in the church, do you reckon you could concede, adjust to that? Or is it like you? that's a kind of very set thing in the Bible and that's not going to adjust? Well, I, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how that would actually work. So, for example, when Jesus speaks against um, sexual immorality, um, sexual immorality encompasses everything talked about in the Testament. So sexual practices outside of marriage. And when, when Jesus says sexual immorality, he's referring to a whole chunk of passages in the Old Testament. And when he refers to it over 10 to 20 times, you have to say well, those 10 to 20 times, they were added in later. When Paul talks about how marriage is structured 20, 30 times, you have to say, oh, well, they're just additions as well. I mean, I know of a lot of um, uh, atheist homosexual communities say, well, Paul corrupted the Bible. That is one view. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no evidence. But you can also claim it without evidence. It's just an opinion. But as Christians kind of say, so, are you, so if we believe in Christianity, we believe God gave us a word to go on. Are we saying God made a mistake? He left us with errors and we cannot know the truth of Christianity. So we're all just blind and blind and sort of trapped. Oh yeah, sure. You can go along with that. But like I said, um, I've, I've written up about 900 pages worth of evidence for the reliability of the new Testament, reliability of the text and all the manuscript evidence says what we have in the text is what we had then. There are issues of grammar here and there, one or two verses, but no doctrine or values are affected. I mean, even atheist scholar Bart Ehrman, who is he's not a christian but he says look no christian doctrine um or christian belief is affected by any textual thing so what we have in the new testament nothing's going to turn up because we have everything we'd ever expect we have over five thousand early greek, uh, greek manuscripts and they're consistent we're not if we find one that disagrees with it we're saying oh okay we found a heretical work uh, and that's what they usually do um, because they know what words were originally in the text there's uh, there's millions and millions of lines of text outside of the Bible from the church fathers and people who came after recording this stuff. Problem is, there's, there's no gap. Um, this is interesting because I was... The LGBT... Sorry. Because in the um, documentary, they looked at... So there's that passage... I know it's in the Old Testament. I can't remember exactly what chapter it was. But um, they were saying, like, uh, mm-hmm. if a man lies as a woman as he lies... No, if a man lies as a man as he lies with a woman, that's an abomination. But that term abomination mm-hmm. is also used to refer to, like, mixing a cloth and then eating shrimp and those kind of things obviously that's not really seen as an abomination in the church now and the word abomination that mm-hmm. like just without that out of that set of the cultural practice of the time so there is a lot of evidence a lot of analysis and exegesis of text that would suggest perhaps that there isn't such a not an oppression because you wouldn't agree with that word but there isn't such a kind of outcasting of lgbt practices perhaps well I think one of the things with these exegesis things, so this is Desmond Tutu, who in fact is not an evangelical Christian, he's a liberal. Um, he, he quotes some nice stuff, but um, he also disagrees a lot with evangelical teachings. And 
Mm. Um, I mean, he's never turned up to a Christian debate to actually debate. He's, he's just said these to his audience and never actually is willing to take up a debate for someone to challenge him on this. Plenty of people would offer. Um, I know um, Sean McDowell had a debate with Matthew Vines. It's a very useful debate to watch. And Matthew Vines, who's written on um, homosexuality in the church and argued for a debate, Sean. And I came out of that debate just thinking, okay, well, I understand where they're getting at, but I, I don't see any reason to ground it in that. I see speculation, assumptions, but I don't see any grounding in it. Um, and also, if there are references of, in the Old Testament, which I don't think there are, the references to abominations have to be seen in the large text. You can't, you have to look at every abomination you mention. You have to look at the Hebrew behind it. So you can't get away with one verse and say, oh, well, it might mean this in one verse, but what about in the other 70 places? Well, they all did it differently, except for this one. Well, I have a, uh, I have a large um, Jewish scholarly text around the corner. I don't want to get it because it's like a massive block, but it's a lot. And they go into these nitty gritty word things. Um, and I haven't looked into it um, properly. But in light of the New Testament, which is sort of, you can interpret the old through the new because Jesus is the fulfillment of a lot of the Old Testament culture passes. So even if you get lost in a lot of them, Jesus often reaffirms in the new a lot of what we need to understand. The old is the connective to the new. The new helps us see the lens um, for what we still need to go on to. And Paul adds clarification. And in the New Testament, it's incredibly clear. Um, Paul's got, there are specific verses, unfortunately, which people hold up on cardboard science. They shouldn't. Um, because there, there, there are many sort of sexual practices which are outlawed. There's not just so much sexuality. There's lots of different things which are um, sort of uncomfortable. Like I say, um, going around and divorcing and having second marriages. You say, that's a very simple thing. Why not? Well, we're actually, we're against that too. Um, we're against it because there are deeper things at work here and things like that. And we believe the same for marriage. Just because these things are emotional, these are hugely important because they're part of our identity, doesn't mean they, they sort of they trump each other. But I would recommend watching the Matthew Vines versus Sean McDowell debate. Um, because you won't be offended watching it because both people are so kind and so friendly to each other. That's <laughs> what a dialogue should be like. Um, it just should. I don't want to be, go around beating people with Bible verses. I want to bring people to Jesus. And then Jesus is the work in them. I was not perfect when I became a Christian. I did all sorts of wrong things. But it was Jesus who changed me, not here's the Bible rules, believe in them, then you can come into church and become a Christian. That's stupid. Jesus never did that. Yeah. Um, So you can debate about it, but all you'd end up with is, okay, cool, this is now my new legalistic Christianity, but you never become a Christian. Just like the new rule. But again, you become a Pharisee of, you become a liberal Pharisee with LGBT values and you miss Christianity altogether. You just become a cultural, political Christian, a Pharisee. You never become a Christian. You miss the spiritual stuff, which is the, the best part about it. Cool. Without it, you're not a Christian. Yeah. Cool. So I've been, I've been talking for quite a bit now. That's been insanely interesting. So I guess as a summary, could you say like, maybe like two or three points? Like where do you think, say if I said it, it's now 2050, like what do you think the church looks like? What are your like main kind of thoughts about changes? Hmm. So I think number one, um, Christians will become better informed about what they believe and why they believe, mainly because apologetics and philosophy will become more part of the church. Hmm. The second thing, um, so yeah, the Christian will have a sort of a better defended circle. Secondly, I think the culture Christians who aren't half committed or just sort of like it, they're all going to disappear. So the only Christians left in theory will be there will be some cultural christians but generally you will have a stronger form of christianity and the unhealth and 
there'll still be cults. I wish I could get rid of them. <laughs> like the one in Korea that helped out with the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, they, they ain't Christian. They're a cult. Um, but there's people think they're Christian. Mm. So there'll still be cults. But hopefully it should be more. I wish it would be more obvious. It depends how the media, how kind the media is. Chances are it won't be kind to us. Um, what else will happen? I think Gen Z. I generally think uh, spiritual new age. They call it new age. Spiritual people will become a more common thing. Um, but then more people will be seeking grounded answers. Um, and that's what Christianity can provide. It can provide grounded answers. It does have a lot of answers. I've got a whole website to it, um, to, to looking at the evidence. Um, so I think there are lots of more Christians doing stuff like that. What else? Um, I think, um, I think adjust, adjustment things will be talked about more in the church, maybe. So women in pastoral roles, um, sprinkling baptism or full immersion um <laughs> i think that'll depend by church um but i think most people are just like well look you're making the commitment to be baptized so mm. maybe that's not as much of an adjustment the women of the church thing and free will uh i don't know i i joke i say there'll be less calvinists in the world there'll be more um molinists <laughs> but these are just weird words beyond people half the time so they're not bridging with the apologetics <laughs> Yeah. yeah i think apologetic and um i think the big thing i really hope mm. is we'll return to sunday school for adults at church <laughs> well, that... <laughs> well yeah i mean william lane craig this guy who's debated 400 a uh, 400 plus atheists i think uh, I, I might be throwing out a large number just to sound impressive but he's debated a lot of atheists yeah. um he hosts a sunday class every sunday to a class of uh i think it's at johnson ferry baptist church and he just teaches them through uh about over over four years he takes them through about about oh, three to four hundred lectures on systematic apologetic philosophy lectures and so they go they understand different doctrines of christianity the apologetic arguments behind it so if you started that at like 16 uh uh no 13 14 and you finished it by the time you were 18 you go off to uni uh, well, this is like a, a kind of it, these Sunday school things basically can provide you with a seminary level of apologetics training or a, a small degree. So I think there'll be generally everything's pointing to a more informed Christian with faithful beliefs, a liberal church that will be might be interesting to LGBT or interesting to Christian. I think no one's interested in them. People just want real commitment or none. This halfway house thing. I, I don't think it appeals to anyone. Maybe some people for a time, but people move on. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. That was so interesting. Well, I mean, I found out to be a really interesting conversation. So big thanks again to Christian. He also referenced a lot of different like articles and different people and their debates. So I'll link them all down below if you're interested in that. And thank you for listening. Thank you.